Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast and another episode exploring the fascinating world of IMD. Join me, your host, James Nurse, on a journey through the field as I ask authors to take me through their work and explain their findings. In this episode, the doxycycline paradox in primary mitochondrial disease. So, well, the editorials published in the journal always make for interesting reading. They're a great opportunity for experts in the field to comment on interesting work published both within our journal and elsewhere. And the recent editorial, The Doxycycline Paradox in Primary Mitochondrial Diseases, is just one such example. And I'm delighted to be joined by all three authors, Shamima Rahman, Tamas Kozic, and Ava Mareva. Shamima, Tamas, and Ava, thank you for joining me. Hi, James. Thanks so much for having Thanks, James. Very pleased to be invited to come back to your podcast series. So, Ava and Shamima, it's obviously great to have you back. Thomas, welcome for the first time. I have to say, I think it's the first time we've had a couple on the podcast. I do love firsts. <laughs> we have to be here as a couple. I, I trust there'll be no airing of dirty laundry. <laughs> Um, so therapies in mitochondrial disease are always a really popular topic, but I kind of imagine that a one-size-fits-all approach to treatment is a little naive. It's kind of like lumping all cancers in together and thinking they all work. What do we mean by the term mitochondrial disorder in, in this context, and how should they be best divided up? Okay, so that's a really good question, James. The, the problem is, as you say, that it's a huge group of extremely heterogeneous disorders that is expanding virtually daily at the moment, we are up to a count of around 400 different monogenic disorders that we refer to as primary mitochondrial diseases. We tried to define this in a review we wrote in The Lancet in 2018, I think it was, where we said that primary mitochondrial diseases are those disorders that affect the oxidative phosphorylation system directly or indirectly, but can also be caused by dysfunction of the mitochondrial lipid membranes, mitochondrial structure and ultrastructure, and of other metabolic functions that occur in the mitochondria. And may I ask, you're one of the brains behind the International Classification of Inherited Metabolic Disease, this all-encompassing way to consider all IMD. Um, we've talked about that, in fact, in another podcast. How did you handle mitochondrial disease there? Within ICIMD, we have divided the mitochondrial disorders into disorders of OXFOS subunits and assembly factors, and then another group affecting mitochondrial gene expression. We've kept the mitochondrial DNA mutations in a category of their own because of the different inheritance. And then for some of the mitochondrial disorders, we've had to cross-reference because we know that factors that are needed for mitochondrial fission are also needed for peroxisomal fission. So we no longer think of organelles as working in isolation. And we have a section of ICMD, which is about organelle dynamics. So quite a wide definition, I'm afraid. And, and you're absolutely right. I don't think we can hope to treat all mitochondrial diseases with a single treatment. And if I may add something, the question is also not just what kind of medications we choose to use to try to improve mitochondrial function, but also are there medications we have to avoid in patients with mitochondrial dysfunction? And we already have a list of drugs we know could worsen mitochondrial function in primary mitochondrial disorder patients, even lead to early death. I know, and it was one of our most popular papers in the journal and one of our earliest podcasts when we talked about that list of drugs. Um, okay, so we talked about what are primary mitochondrial disorders. The subject of this podcast is doxycycline. Now, I'm from this beautiful part of England where we have lots of deer and therefore we have lots of ticks. So for me, doxycycline is a treatment for Lyme's disease. Why might it, or even any antibiotic, be relevant for mitochondrial disease? 
Yeah, and if I may go back to the uh, the roots of this whole story, of course, uh, everybody thought that as mitochondria are also closely related to bacteria and doxycycline is used to uh, inhibit uh, bacterial translation. So it should also uh, inhibit mitochondrial translation. So that should be detrimental for mitochondrial function. Thereby, it should not be given to patients with primary mitochondrial disorders. And if I may... In the systematic review of the drugs that had previously been listed to be contraindicated in mitochondrial disease, we looked back at a lot of the drugs, including the tetracyclines, and we felt that the evidence was very much from cell models and animal models and using much higher doses than we might use in humans with mitochondrial disease. And so we actually shortened the list of contraindicated drugs to far fewer drugs. And I think tetracyclines are one of the ones that we thought could be used safely if they were absolutely needed in our patients with primary mitochondrial disease. And then, of course, there were some studies, if I may go into that, and that was also in animal studies, but also drug screens in uh, human uh, patient cells from a primary mitochondrial disorder. And they also showed, you know, a positive and really uh, nice effect of doxycycline improving uh, cell survival and also uh, somewhat improving mitochondrial function, if you will. So I think there is this uh, paradox of doxycycline. Will it actually inhibit mitochondrial translation? And it does also in humans. So there is no doubt about that. But on the other hand, there are quite a handful of studies which showed that doxycycline improved several aspects of mitochondrial function and thereby it was suggested a potential novel uh, therapy in primary mitochondrial disorders. So uh, I'm a bit confused. We're worried that because of this, this endosymbiotic origin of mitochondria, that maybe tetracyclines were bad, and then you've been able to show that they don't seem to be bad. But then you're saying maybe they're good? I mean, this is the paradox, isn't it? It's the paradox that, that is captured within the type of your paper. Why might they be good drugs? And are there any particular examples? So I think that this is here something that I'm not a practicing clinician, of course, but what was in, said in the introduction, I think that is also very important to uh, note here that so far, primary mitochondrial disorders, as far as treatment concerned, were approached as a big group of uh, disorders, and that was not really uh, subdivided or stratified into subgroups, not even like complex one, complex two, or complex three, or maybe more like uh, organ presentation. And I think that could have also resulted in the failure of many of the clinical trials as you said, you know, if we approach cancer as just one group and we try one drug, it may not be efficient, you know, in one cancer maybe, but if you look into a, a bigger group, like as all cancers, then maybe many cancer drugs would fail as an efficient uh, treatment. So what we actually proposed in this editorial and also based on the literature, that doxycycline would be very uh, specifically beneficial in primary mitochondrial disorders linked to complex one dysfunction. So I think if you look at the existing literature on doxycycline, there are papers, you know, and also drug screens which prove doxycycline could be beneficial in specifically in MDSF4 uh, either patients or there is a knockout mouse model, which also um, treated with doxycycline showed an increased lifespan and also uh, somewhat improved phenotype. So I think that was some experimental data. And also more molecular or biological uh, studies, you know, show that doxycycline could also result in a metabolic flexibility or a metabolic reprogramming within the cells. Particularly, it seems that doxycycline moves the cellular energy used from glucose or carbohydrates, if you will, towards lipids. So basically, after doxycycline treatment, it seems that cells prefer the lipid metabolism and lipids as an energy source for ATP. Of course, the burning of lipids would be a very important part of the lipid metabolism or energy production when you have a complex two activation. 
And that is also suggested in the literature that if you have a patient or a model with complex one deficiency, there is some compensatory upregulation of complex two. So if we put this together and then we have a patient with complex one deficiency and you have an upregulation of complex two, which is very important for lipid oxidation, and then you also have a cellular reprogramming in a way, the metabolic uh, reprogramming or rewiring from the carbohydrate metabolism to lipid metabolism. So basically you try to generate as much energy starting from and driven by complex two, then you sort of shut down or inhibit complex one, and then you increase complex two activity, and that could generate sufficient energy for the cells, and that could improve the, uh, the phenotype. So this might happen in uh, the doxycycline treatment. And although we did not go into that aspect in the editorial, but we also have to consider that complex one is one of the major source of rust production. So if we, in a way, you know, could interfere with complex one function or inhibit complex one function and drive the whole ATP production from complex two, then we may also decrease uh, the cellular rust production, which could also be beneficial for the patients. So I think this could happen. And this is what I need to emphasize that, and again, this all evades experimental and also clinical trials. But our approach to this problem would be that doxycycline as a potential treatment for primary mitochondrial disorders should focus on complex one deficiencies or primary mitochondrial disorders related to complex one deficiency. And just in addition to that, it is uh, not published and I will not go into details, but we also did a large-scale drug screen in um, patient-derived cardiomyocytes. So these are really disease-relevant human tissues of individuals with MELOS, a primary mitochondrial disorder, uh, significantly affecting again complex one. And in that drug screen, one of the hits, you know, that we found in the discovery screen, that was also a tetracycline analog. So it seems that there is some uh, potential beneficial effect of tetracyclines uh, or analogs in complex one deficiency. Of course, this drug screen is now uh, moving to the next phase when we validate these findings. But I think all this uh, data from literature uh, supports that doxycycline could be a potential good treatment for primary mitochondrial disorders. Oh, I just wanted to say that what I teach to my students is that if you sit in a room and you have a fire, and so I'm thinking about the fire as like mitochondrial energy metabolism, if uh, somehow you put something on the fire, which is like suffocating the fire, like wet blocks of wood, then you get a lot of smoke and your fire is not so strong. So in other words, the smoke could be the reactive oxygen species, the ROS, and the fire could be the energy production. So you can imagine if that person sits in the room and the fire is suffocating, you probably die first from the smoke and not from getting cold. So if you can somehow get rid of the smoke, for example, like use a bunch of newspaper sheets and try to make some wind and get rid of the smoke. Maybe your fire won't be so warm, but you won't get suffocated by the smoke. So in other words, what I wanted to say is that in complex one deficiency, uh, you make a lot of ROS, that's the smoke, right? And uh, your fire is not so strong. But if you get rid of the smoke or the ROS, then maybe you have less energy, but you won't suffocate from the toxic byproducts. And in this case, in complex one deficiency, 
efficiency, your toxic cyclin could be actually how you get rid of ROS or the smoke and the, the fire still burning enough that you could survive but not get intoxicated. That's how I usually think about the role of complex one in the mitochondrial function. Very important, but the rest of the complexes can still function even without a full complex one activity. I just wanted to say that I haven't heard that analogy before, Eva. I really like it. What a nice way of explaining reactive oxygen species. (laughs) It kind of feels like this is a good thing. You've gone from a drug that people were saying you shouldn't have to a drug you're saying actually could be very useful for for some patients. It sounds like Thomas is really teasing us with some stuff that he can't tell us yet. Um, Shamima, we've talked about the difficulty of trialing treatments in mitochondrial disease. There's going to be a danger. People are just going to want to try this and see, isn't there? Perhaps, but there's also that legacy of people being worried about using antibiotics, including tetracyclines in mitochondrial disease. So perhaps those things will balance each other out. There's the optimist in me. I'm hoping that people will be prepared to wait because what we need right now is more preclinical research, um, which it sounds as though Tamas is in the process of generating And we particularly need to address the questions of the optimal dose for the beneficial effects of tetracycline versus high dose leading to detrimental effects on mitochondrial protein synthesis. But we also need to find out if there are particular preparations of the tetracyclines that might be better than others. And once that preclinical data is generated, then we may be in a position to go on to a small clinical safety study. But I think I foresee the age-old problem that we're still wrestling with in mitochondrial disease, and that is selecting the best outcome measures to be able to show whether or not we've seen a benefit or not from a candidate therapy. Uh, Thank you, Shamima. I was just wondering about the outcome measures. And when we talk about complex one deficiency, The problem is that we lump together patients who share a common background in biology, but probably have a multitude of symptoms as clinical presentation. So I think I totally agree with the challenge you just mentioned, that this is a great potential uh, drug. And maybe there are others in the drug screening Thomas and his collaborators uh, found but how do we find a common denominator in the patient group, which could be a good clinical outcome? That would be our challenge, right? <laughs> and I fully agree, and I'm not a practicing clinician, but I think Shamima also mentioned a very important point. We don't want to suggest now, and I hope that people listening to this podcast will not tomorrow start treating mitochondrial patients, especially maybe the complex one patients with doxycycline, because we don't know yet many things about it. I think what we can say based on that uh, uh, systematic review that doxycycline is safe as a uh, antibiotics, you know, if you give it to patients with an infection, uh, even if they have a mitochondrial dysfunction. I think before we can move into a, a real clinical treatment, first we have to, as Shamima emphasized, do some additional preclinical studies. I think that those will be very important. And it may be that we have to use somewhat even lower dose that we would use as an antibiotic. So I think that is also something that we need to figure out in preclinical studies. And then the next step would be some small scale clinical trials, you know, safety studies, and then maybe move into a uh, clinical trial. And in the meantime, of course, there's a lot of studies and a lot of uh, work on natural history data. So hopefully we can collect, as, as Eva and also Shamima emphasized, 
uh, clinical outcomes that could be important and could be meaningful to really uh, follow and really prove the uh, clinical efficiency of doxycycline. But do not start it yet as of tomorrow uh, in primary mitochondrial disorders. Yes, no, I think these are very much podcasts and not and not treatment guidelines. Um, I don't know if it's fair to ask, is there a, a risk that with a drug like doxycycline that is an old antibiotic, that there is not a financial incentive in looking into its utility? I think that's an interesting uh, question. And I have some experience with maybe the financial incentives around that. So as I said, we uh, did a huge uh, uh, drug screen in um, primary mitochondrial disorder, patient-derived cells. And this was a, a drug screen which focused on FDA-approved drugs. So this is a repurposing uh, screen. It was actually sponsored by, uh, by a foundation. But in general, in the uh, drug repurposing studies, there is not really a financial incentive for pharmaceutical industries, for universities, for any entities, because that is not something that we can uh, really put an IP on. Um, but on the other hand, when you talk to NIH and some other uh, individuals, you know, also the United Mitochondrial Disease Foundation, they prefer maybe these drug repurposing studies because they are faster. So if you have already an FDA approved drug and if it's even approved in children, it might actually accelerate the translation of those screens into clinical practice. So I think there is this uh, sort of balance that we need to find. Definitely pharmaceutical companies might not be interested in these, but one aspect could be that we identify the targets of that repurposed drug and we modify the drug and make uh, maybe a more uh, potent and more efficient version of it, which is you know a new uh, molecule that could be patented or could be, uh, be linked with uh, intellectual property uh, agreement. So I think that that could happen. But at this point, these drug repurposing studies are not really uh, something that any pharmaceutical industry or or uh, universities would be interested in because they look at you know the dollar, dollar signs. Unfortunately, in our lab, we choose for this uh, repurposing approaches because we still believe that the field, as some Shamima at the beginning mentioned, needs uh, novel treatments, and this could be something that, as I said which very fast translate into clinical practice. Excellent. I know that for the patients, what they want is results now because that's where the need is. And uh, one more thing I, I would like to mention that these are all, as I said, drug repurposing studies. And But I think what we also need to do, we need to understand much more in depth, you know, the mitochondrial biology. Because these drugs, you know, they're not really causal in the uh, treatment of these disorders. They may have an effect, and maybe this effect is not directly on the mitochondria. Maybe there's some other pathways that we interfere with, and there are some uh, downstream effects, but we do not treat the, uh, the primary cause of the disease. So I think the field also needs to uh, really uh, go into that, understand mitochondrial biology, and then we can design much more informed, if you will, uh, drug targets for uh, mitochondrial disorders, and that would really uh, improve the clinical care for these patients. But till that is actually a reality, because it's easy to say, but it's a very complex system, you know, <laughs> I think these uh, drug repurposing studies that many people, not just us, many people do that, would really advance the, uh, the field. But we need to be careful which patients could be um, really treated with that particular drug. And also, as it was mentioned several times, what clinical outcome measures we will um, uh, put into the clinical trials. Fabulous. So it's a it's an exciting drug. It, it has promise, but still work to be done. 
thank you all three of you for joining me today it's been a pleasure listening to you um if you'd like to read the editorial please click the link in the podcast description or why not download the wiley online library app and find the editorial within the july issue of the jimd and if you'd like to hear more from shamima and um, ava you can find them in our icimd podcast thomas ava and shamima thank you so much for speaking with me thanks james it's been a pleasure thank you Thank you. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.